A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022, the 426th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. And I said this was going to be a big week. In the 22 hours since I put the show up yesterday, there has been so much important news that it's almost overwhelming. I spent most of last night thinking about like, wow, maybe this just is all set out in a plan. Like this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Because it seems like all of the major stories that we've talked about on this podcast that have been happening in the nation and the world over the last few years are all coming to a head right now. Like all these little rivers are just finally flowing together and joining this vast ocean. And it's quite a thing to behold when you are focusing on this stuff all day, every day. 
and looking for the patterns, looking to see when all of this stuff will come together. I think that we are absolutely reaching that moment. And one of the things that I want to talk about, I was thinking about this last night. It is amazing if there was going to be an operation, a psychological operation to undo all of the decades of psychological manipulation we've endured at the hands of the global communist movement, at the hands of our own, and I say our own in quotes, CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, at the hands of our own media, who are in some way tools of our intelligence agencies. If you want to undo all that, how would you undo it? Well, you would have to reverse every single one of the bad beliefs that are now so deeply seated within our culture. Most of us have grown up taking a lot of what the media said for granted, maybe not the details, but the big picture stuff like that. This ruler like Vladimir Putin, for instance, is an evil dictator. Every ruler around the world who doesn't do what the American power structure, the global communist power structure tells them to do. That person is an evil dictator. The idea that we have free and fair elections, the idea that racism is this overriding problem in our society between people and not just simply a way that the global communists can divide us in order to take further power when we know that's one of their primary motivations always. Collectivist ideologies must divide in order to gain power. That's why they're so pernicious. And the idea that vaccines are automatically a good thing. These are all examples of ideas that we have held as a culture on the assumption that so many people hold this belief. Therefore, it must be right and true. And we accept it as received knowledge without figuring out whether or not it actually is true. And we are reaching a moment where we're understanding that not just some of these things were false, but they're all false and they're all provably false. And we cannot realize these things until we actually have to wrestle with them in our own lives. And as someone who spent a large part of my adulthood in Hollywood, which is a very, very, permissive and amoral culture, and in some ways a nihilistic culture, it's easy to see how we can go from justifying little things we know are wrong to gradually bigger things that we know are wrong. And we will make explanations, we'll make justifications, we'll rationalize these things. And if someone remains in that mindset where the team must be good. These are my people. We must be doing the right things. The more you do that, the more you must be willing to rationalize. And at the point where you are no longer able to rationalize the things that your side, your team, the people you identify with, when you can no longer rationalize the things that they're doing, that's when you start to wake up. And unfortunately for most people, they won't do that until it directly affects their lives. But let's think about all of the stuff that they have forced people to rationalize and justify. And, you know, you can start with the politicians themselves. You can go to the media. But then ultimately, the question still remains for 
our family and friends and neighbors, what are they willing to rationalize and justify? They have now defended society-wide propaganda. They've defended inflation and argued that inflation is just fine or it's good. The prices are rising, but it doesn't matter because who's not willing to pay $5 a gallon for gas, for instance? They say that. Now, $2 extra per gallon of gas for someone that buys 20 gallons of gas a week, that's $160 a month. And maybe that's not a lot if you make half a million dollars a year or $200,000 a year and you think it's going to be temporary and you're like, yeah, okay, it's a minor inconvenience. Yeah, maybe. But what if you're a single mom with two kids who makes $35,000 a year? Do you have an extra $160 a month to pay for an illegitimate president's bad policies? Of course not. But all the people who imagine themselves as the sort of people who stand up for the poor, they're not standing up for anyone now. They've defended the forced vaccination of tiny children who are at absolutely no risk of death or even severe illness from the coronavirus with an experimental gene therapy that has a far better chance of killing them or maiming them or sterilizing them than the coronavirus ever had. But they did it because they were following the science. They now defend racist hiring practices. They see no problem whatsoever with the president of the United States, the fake president, saying that he would only hire a black female as vice president and then doing it again for the Supreme Court. So racist hiring practices. Yeah, that's OK. Now we can defend that. They're defending child abuse. Every time they say that children should be masked. New York City is trying to keep children masked indefinitely. They defended rape last year. They defended rape last year in Virginia schools because the rapist was currently identifying as a girl. So the school district covered it up and the Department of Justice called the parents domestic terrorists and the politicians and the media and our friends and neighbors thought that was just fine. They would go ahead and stick up for that. They would repeat the slogans they learned on television to cover for that. They defend a slave trade at the southern border because to do otherwise would be racist, even though they are trafficking women and children. The cartels are getting paid to bring people across that border and they rape them on the way, including the children. That is something that actually happens at a very, very high rate. And then people are brought to this country so that they can facilitate other immigration or they can be exploited for their labor or for their political power in terms of casting fraudulent votes, which absolutely does happen. They defend censorship by the tech companies in league with media and the government in direct violation of the First Amendment. These are actual violations of our rights as humans, our rights as American citizens, and they defend it. They think it's good because they don't want anything said about their team. They might have to then question what their team is actually representing. They don't want that out there. They don't want those narratives getting pushed to the surface because then it'll make it harder for them to defend their team.
They have their hands full with the slave trade and the child abuse and the forced vaccination. They defend the government's ability to cut people off from their own finances, and they defend the ability for the government to limit where people can spend their own money. And that is only growing worse. That is literally the Great Reset plan. That is one of the ways they plan to maintain full societal control. These people defend political imprisonment without trial in heinous conditions for people who have just walked around the Capitol or walked into the building after being let in by Capitol Police officers. They defend corrupt political dealings. They pretended Hunter's laptop wasn't real. They defend all of the spending. They defend Nancy Pelosi's investment genius. They defend the passage of bills through our Congress that commit the American people to generations of debt so that they can line the pockets they need to line to maintain power. They defend a stolen election. They refuse to look at the evidence, which is obvious, which is overwhelming. There is no way that Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes, but they defend it. They don't want anyone to look. They say it's the big lie. They say it's domestic terrorism. They say you're destroying our democracy. If you want to check and see if this obviously fraudulent election was fair or not, they are now defending their total indifference to the potential for World War Three. They figure it must be worth it because the TV says so. And Vladimir Putin is so evil and he's a big country who's invading a smaller country. After all, we have to defend the weak Ukraine against the strong Russia. And they do that despite the fact that Ukraine has a long history of Nazi influence and that that Nazi influence remains today with the Azov Battalion as part of Ukraine's National Guard. I think CNN had a member of the Azov Battalion on their air. It said Azov Regiment right below his picture. And the politicians, the media, and our family, friends, neighbors, fellow citizens are now defending Nazis. Three weeks ago, out of nowhere, after calling everybody a Nazi for years, they are now defending Nazis. Three weeks ago, they just started. They just determined the right thing to do was to defend Nazis. Just in this instance, of course. And, you know, principles, they're very, very fluid. They're like gender. They can change any time, just whenever you say, and then no one else can question it. So, yeah, no one had it on their office pool for 2022. What will the communists begin doing? Oh, they're going to defend Nazis. No one had that. But it turns out it's true. And look at the separation here. Look at what the divide really is at this point. It's a matter of what you will allow yourself to defend in order to retain the view that your side was right all along. If they give up on any of these things, 
Well, then they have to start questioning the whole thing. And that's what they're afraid of because they're worried they might find out that they've been defending everything because the TV told them to. And they've been living like that for decades. And what does that mean? What does that mean about them? What does it mean that they have not been forced to question any of these beliefs? Even now, we are two years in over two years in to the most significant period of crisis in American history two years, and they still have not been incentivized to consider that maybe their viewpoints on all of these things that they will admit they know virtually nothing about, they still have not considered they might be wrong. And if you were to order all of these things that they have defended on a timeline or rank them by their moral importance, you'd have some pretty stunning answers at the top. Defending a slave trade, defending rape, defending Nazis. And they're not done because what they have to do now is basically the coup de grace of nihilistic amorality in service of their cause. They are now defending pedophilia. They are rationalizing the light sentencing against pedophilia because they have been told by the television that getting Katanji Brown Jackson onto the Supreme Court is their moral duty. Everything can be made better if we just get this strong black woman onto the Supreme Court. And they're arguing that her going light, a pattern of going light on convicted pedophiles in their sentencing is a more academic matter. You see, if you just understood their thinking a little better, then it would all make sense. Yes, there's definitely a pattern, but you see this pattern is very principled. And the principle is that these sentences were given out to people who just had child pornography. They weren't the ones making the child pornography, so they're not as bad. And that really is the argument. I'll play some of it for you in a second. But before that, and I just want to give a sensitivity warning here in case there's kids in the car or whatever. I'm going to play a clip that was on OAN last night, and it is going to shock your senses. Okay, so it's about a minute or a minute and a half long. If you're not up for it, Don't listen, but I want to frame what I was just talking about a second ago with the immigration stuff in the context of what's happening right now in this Supreme Court nomination. And I'll play what Ketanji Brown Jackson has to say about all of this after. But I think it's important to share this clip so that people can fully understand that the problem of child abuse and pedophilia and child pornography is not simply what we're told in an after-school special, like where there's some uncle doing messed up things with a niece or nephew. And I don't mean to make light of that either. That is certainly horrific. And one of the most horrific things about this is that you are taking the future away from a child. That is a horrific crime. But when we look at it that way, it seems in some way random 
or isolated. And you have to understand that the ultimate problem here is neither random nor isolated. It is systemic and widespread. So here we go. And I want people to know, Dan, it's brutal, right? This is a very violent crime. There's 25 forms of trafficking. So it's debt bondage. It's forced fraud, coercion. It yeah. could be labor trafficking. But there's always sex involved. Why? Because somehow they have to pay back either for safety and when you're going to pay me to, for protecting you, for moving you across the border, for giving you shelter, right. giving you food, clothes. Sex is the form of payment in the Ukraine, in the Baltic states at the moment, and also uh, in Texas. For, for kids that are coming across the southern border on the watch of our current administration, mind you. And they know this very well. They understand this. Traffickers make people pay through sex. We're talking about a sex traffic victim that's being victimized is sold five to 20 times per day. Let that sink in for a second. A seven, eight, 10 year old child is forced to give sex five to 20 times per day. It's savage. It's demonic. I had on a former border agent a few weeks back, Yako, and they talked about the rape trees that are along the trails coming up from Mexico in tech, or pardon me, south of Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. And the rape trees, folks, if you don't know, they have the underwear of the women and the children that they've raped along the way. And the coyotes let the underwear thrown up in the trees to other coyotes. No, this is my trail. These are my people. I run my people through here. Don't come on this trail. There's literally dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of these rape trees along these routes. Can we start talking seriously about this? Now, just to be clear, when he says coyotes, he's talking about the cartel smugglers. That's what they're called. He's not talking about wild dogs, although he may as well be, truth be told. Now, if you listen to that and you haven't heard any of this before, your stomach is probably turned because that is one of the sickest things you could possibly ever imagine. But nonetheless, this happens every day. And it is allowed to happen every day. And it is actively enabled by the illegitimate administration in Washington, D.C. right now. That is why Trump was building the wall. It wasn't because he was racist against brown people. There are 170 thousand illegal immigrants ready to spill over our border right now because Joe Biden is taking away Title 42, which was a Trump era policy to mitigate this problem. If this was about race or this was about refugees, the Democrats could figure out a system for legal immigration that fulfilled the needs of the people they're talking about and of the people of the United States. And the truth is, there actually is no need to be fulfilled for the people of the United States. So they don't talk about any of that and they allow this stuff to happen. How come you don't hear about any of this? How come you don't hear about what they're going to do to solve these problems? If they are taking the mass immigration as somehow a given that it's a result of climate change. Well, why aren't they trying to at least make that thing safer? Why aren't they addressing these problems? Why does Kamala Harris go down to the golden triangle and talk about how this can be prevented? Well, it's because they don't want to talk about it because they don't want anyone to know about it. Because if people know about it, then the global communists can't get their way. 
So with all that in mind, let's hear how things are going in the Senate for Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination hearings. This is Dick Durbin doing the questioning. Let me address another issue that came up yesterday in the opening phase of this uh, nomination hearing. Uh, And it's the issue involving child pornography. I want to turn to that issue because it was raised multiple times, primarily by the senator from Missouri. And it was he was questioning your sentencing record in child pornography cases uh, that do not involve the production of pornographic material. They're known as non-production cases. I wanted to put some context here. The senator from Missouri has in his tweets said of your position on this issue, Judge Jackson has a pattern of letting child porn offenders off the hook for their appalling crimes, both as a judge and a policymaker. She's been advocating it since law school. This goes beyond soft on crime, the senator said. I'm concerned this is a record that endangers our children. I thought about his charges as I watched you and your family listening carefully yesterday and what impact it might have had on you personally to know that your daughters, husband, parents, family, and friends were hearing the charges that your implementation of this law, sentencing, endangered children. Could you tell us what was going through your mind at that point? Now, I want to pause just for a second before hearing her answer, because I want to make sure that we are clear on what's happening here. Okay, this is Dick Durbin, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, setting up an opportunity for Katanji Brown Jackson to give a sweeping answer about the questioning from Josh Hawley yesterday. And he's framing it. From a position of sympathy, he's sympathizing with her that she had to endure being asked questions about her actual record of going light on child pornographers and the consumers of child pornography because he was worried that it would reflect negatively on her character in the eyes of her friends and family. Now, none of these people cared at all when they were leveling totally unfounded accusations against Brett Kavanaugh. And those accusations were totally unfounded, but they went all the way in with all of them. And no one went harder on that stuff, more or less, than Kamala Harris. And look how handsomely she's been rewarded. And of course, Kamala was one of the leaders in the Jussie Smollett hate crime hoax as well, because she was trying to pass her anti-lynching bill. Dick Durbin should have just asked her on a scale of one to 10, how rude do you think it was that Josh Hawley asked you these questions about your actual record yesterday? That's essentially what we just heard. Here's her answer. Thank you, Senator. Um, As a mother and a judge who has had to deal with these cases, I was thinking that nothing could be further from the truth. These are some of the most difficult cases that a judge has to deal with because we're talking about pictures of sex abuse of children. We're talking about graphic descriptions that judges have to read and consider 
when they decide how to sentence in these cases. And there's a statute that tells judges what they're supposed to do. Congress has decided what it is that a judge has to do in this and any other case when they sentence. And that statute, that statute doesn't say look only at the guidelines and stop. The statute doesn't say um, impose the, the highest possible penalty for this sickening and egregious crime. The, the statute says calculate the guidelines, but also look at various aspects of this offense and impose a sentence that is, quote, sufficient but not greater than necessary to promote the purposes of punishment. And in every case, when I am dealing with something like this, it is important to me to make sure that the children's perspective, the children's voices are represented in my sentencing. And what that means is that for every defendant who comes before me and who suggests, as they often do, that they're just a looker, that these crimes don't really matter, they've collected these things on the internet and it's fine, I tell them about the victim statements that have come in to me as a judge. I tell them about the adults who were former child sex abuse victims who tell me that they will never have a normal adult relationship because of this abuse. I tell them about the ones who say, I went into prostitution, I uh, fell into drugs because I was trying to suppress the hurt that was done to me as an, as an infant. And the one that was the most um, telling to me that I describe at almost every one of these sentencings when I look in the eyes of a defendant who is weeping because I'm giving him a significant sentence. What I say to him is, do you know that there is someone who has written to me and who has told me that she has developed agoraphobia? She cannot leave her house because she thinks that everyone she meets will have seen her, will have seen her pictures on the internet. They're out there forever. At the most vulnerable time of her life. And so she's paralyzed. I tell that story to every child porn defendant as a part of my sentencings so that they understand what they have done. I say to them that there's only a market for this kind of material because there are lookers, that you are contributing to child sex abuse. And then I impose a significant sentence and all of the additional restraints that are available in the law. These people are looking at 20, 30, 40 years of supervision. They can't use their computers in a normal way for decades. I am imposing all of those constraints because I understand how significant, how damaging, how horrible this crime is.
Now, there was nothing in any of that that constituted an explanation for her decision-making process. She told very emotional stories that will all be very good on the cable news this evening. The child brains in the MSNBC audience will lap that up. They will be sitting at home spilling their Uber Eats because they're clapping too hard. They will feel like they now also understand how painful the crime is and that there's no way that Katanji Brown Jackson could ever give light sentences for any of that. She sounds like she really understands all of it. She even said as a mother, and that's how you know she means it. But let's get a quick reminder of exactly what we're talking about here. This is Josh Hawley in his questioning of Katanji Brown Jackson yesterday. Here are, I hope, in the next couple of days, some of the cases from your time on the on the court, the district court, the federal district court, that I hope that we can talk about. Let me just run few, through a few of them so you know exactly which ones I mean. United States versus Hawkins. This was a child pornography case where the defendant distributed multiple images of child porn, possessed dozens more, including videos. The federal sentencing guidelines recommended a sentence of 97 to 121 months in prison. Prosecutors recommended 24 months in prison. Judge Jackson gave the defendant three months in prison. United States versus Chazen. There it's the, that case, the defendant possessed 48 files of child pornography. The federal guidelines recommended 78 to 97 months in prison. The prosecutor recommended the same. Judge Jackson sentenced him to 28 months. United States versus Cooper. There the defendant possessed dozens of images of child pornography and uh, distributed, I should say, distributed dozens of images of child pornography, possessed over 600. The federal guidelines recommended 151 to 188 months in prison. That's a long time. The prosecutor recommended 72 months. Judge Jackson gave the defendant 60 months, which was the lowest sentence permitted by the law. United States versus Down, that's a case where the defendant distributed 33 graphic images and videos of child sexual assault to an anonymous messaging app. Unfortunately, practice that's becoming more common. The federal guidelines recommended 70 to 87 months in prison. The prosecutor recommended 70 months in prison. Judge Jackson sentenced him to only 60 months. Again, that's the lowest level that was permitted by law in that case. United States versus Stewart. The defendant there distributed scores of images of children suffering sexual abuse. The guidelines recommended 97 to 121 months in prison. The prosecutor recommended 97 months in prison. Judge Jackson gave him 57 months. In United States versus Sears, the defendant distributed over 100 videos of child pornography. The guidelines recommended 97 to 121 months in prison. The prosecutor recommended 97 months in prison. Judge Jackson gave him 71 months. In United States versus Savage, the defendant was convicted of traveling across state lines to engage in sexual intercourse with a child and also possessed six separate thumb drives of child pornography. The guidelines recommended 46 to 57 months in prison. The prosecutor recommended 49 months in prison. Judge Jackson sentenced him to 37 months in prison. Now, those are seven cases that represent, as near as we can tell, all of Judge Jackson's cases dealing with child pornography from her time on the district court, in which she had some discretion to hand down a sentence. There's some other cases in which the law, she didn't have any discretion, the law bound the sentence that she had to 
had to give. And what concerns me, and I've been very candid about this, is that in every case, in each of these seven, Judge Jackson handed down a lenient sentence that was below what the federal guidelines recommended and below what prosecutors requested. And so I think there's a lot to talk about there, and I look forward to talking about it. Now, I will note that some have said that the federal sentencing guidelines are too harsh on child sex crimes, especially child pornography. I've heard that argument a lot in recent days. The chairman quoted someone earlier today who takes that point of view. I'll just be honest. I can't say that I agree with that. But hey, at least she told all of those defendants that same story. That'll really give them something to think about. Now, before we move on to another subject, I want to share a little history with Katanji Brown Jackson regarding issues of child pornography and child abuse. And a friend of mine sent this to me this morning. I guess Godlike Productions turned this up. But this is an article from June 22nd, 2017. This is in ABC News right now. The article is still up, although I imagine if it goes wide during this nomination hearing, ABC News might edit it or take it down completely. The headline is Pizzagate shooter sentenced to four years in prison. Judge describes, quote, breathtaking recklessness. Edgar Madison Welch, who fired shots in a Washington, D.C. pizza restaurant in December, was sentenced to four years in prison for federal and local crimes. Welch, 29, was arrested for firing an AR-15 inside the D.C. restaurant Comet Ping Pong as he investigated an unfounded conspiracy theory dubbed Pizzagate that the restaurant was involved in a child sex trafficking ring connected to Hillary Clinton. Now, That sounds like quite a claim. That sounds like QAnon must have come up with it, even though this happened before Q ever existed. And it's such a broad, bold, huge accusation that you'd think it would be too crazy to even imagine it being true. But it turns out if you look into it, there's actually quite a bit behind it in the Podesta emails that were released by WikiLeaks. You might want to look into the association of a man named James Alifantis with other Democrats. James Alifantis is the man who owns Comet Ping Pong. He's a bit of a a socialite. He kind of knows everyone in Washington, D.C. And there's actually a long evidentiary trail on the entire Pizzagate thing. And I myself have never gotten to the bottom of it. It's something that happened before I was awake to all of this and There's so much going on that I have not gone down this particular route too far. But a lot of people with good reason believe that this shooting was a false flag event meant to make any discussion of Pizzagate just completely out of bounds. And I'm sure some of you who don't know anything about Pizzagate are like, well, come on, you're not telling me you believe that. And then other people who know everything about Pizzagate are thinking, bro, it's all true. Like, why are you being so doubtful? So I'm just laying out some background for everybody. Okay, but let's go back to the article here. Welch carried a loaded AR-15 assault rifle and a revolver into a Northwest Washington pizza restaurant, scattering employees and customers and fired his assault rifle into a door. 
the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C. said in a statement announcing the sentence. If I'm not mistaken, I think he also fired that rifle directly into a computer hard drive, too. Welch received four years for a federal charge of interstate transportation of a firearm and ammunition and two years for a District of Columbia charge of assault with a dangerous weapon to be served concurrently. He was also sentenced to 36 months of supervised release. He pleaded guilty to the charges in March. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson called, quote, the extent of the recklessness, end quote, of the defendant's actions breathtaking as she sentenced Welch on Thursday. Man, Katanji Brown Jackson was the judge in the Pizzagate case? Who would have ever imagined that twist in the story? How did someone who is related by marriage to former Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan, who is great friends with many in the Republican establishment, and I believe he's got some board seat on Fox News or something like that, but how would Katanji Brown Jackson be the judge on the Pizzagate case? What a strange confluence of events. Jackson said she had no reason to doubt that Welch thought he was being helpful, but said she could not overstate the concern that other people will see what you have done and be inspired by it. It's always strange to me when mainstream news outlets like will quote like little words out of a passage and fill their own sentence in for the rest of it, like just post what she said. No matter how well-intentioned, people are not allowed to take matters into their own hands, she said. Upon his release from prison, Welch will receive a mental health assessment. He was ordered to stay away from Comet Ping Pong. Welch's attorney, Danny John, gave a passionate plea for a lighter sentence for her client, saying that 18 months would be a strong sentence. He is extremely remorseful, and it is sincere, and it is significant, she added. Welch spoke briefly in court, apologizing to everyone involved, including the restaurant staff. Comet Ping Pong owner James Alifantis said in court that his staff was brave and that Welch caused him physical, emotional, and financial harm. So many of us have suffered from the defendant's actions, he said. But even as the defendant's attorney begged for a lighter sentence, give us some leniency based on his remorse over the crime he committed, thinking that he might be stopping a far more heinous crime. And Katanji Brown Jackson was like, man, if you were only the one who was possessing and looking at the child porn and not the one who went to Comet Ping Pong to find out what actually happens there, I could have taken it easy on you. But you carried a weapon across state lines, and that is beyond the pale. Now, another piece of news that dropped last night that might not on its face sound like a big deal was a decision coming out in the case of Stormy Daniels. And this is from the Daily Mail. Porn star Stormy Daniels is ordered to pay Trump $300,000 in legal fees after court rejects her appeal in defamation case against the former president. 
Former porn star Stormy Daniels was ordered by a federal court to pay Donald Trump $300,000 in attorney fees after it rejected her appeal to another court's ruling in her defamation case against the former president. The ruling by the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit followed an earlier ruling by a lower court that rejected Daniels' defamation suit against Trump after he refuted her claims that they had sex in 2006. The lengthy legal battle has set a chain reaction of appeals with attorneys for both parties being convicted of felonies. Now, that is a pretty misleading statement. Stormy Daniels attorney Michael Avenatti was convicted of felonies. So was Michael Cohen. But Michael Cohen was not Donald Trump's attorney at that time. And Michael Cohen is not Donald Trump's guy as CNN tried to make it seem for a very long time. But Donald Trump released a statement in response to this yesterday. He said, The Ninth Circuit Court just issued a ruling in the Stephanie Clifford, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels, frivolous lawsuit case against me brought by her disgraced lawyer, Michael Avenatti, upholding the lower court ruling that she owes me nearly $300,000 in attorney fees, costs, and sanctions, not including appeal costs. As I have stated many times throughout the years, I never had an affair with Stormy Daniels, nor would I have ever wanted to. The ruling was a total and complete victory and vindication for and of me. The lawsuit was a purely political stunt that never should have been started or allowed to happen. And I am pleased that my lawyers were able to bring it to a successful conclusion after the court fully rejected her appeal. Now all I have to do is wait for all the money she owes me. P.S. The fake news probably won't report this story. And that's true. They're not going to report that story in any way similar to the way they reported the story at the beginning. They had Michael Avenatti on the TV 24 hours a day. Stormy Daniels was everybody's hero. Stormy Daniels was going to be the silver bullet that finally took Trump down. And there have been so many silver bullets. They're always just about to get Trump. But it turns out that this entire thing was a lie. And most of the people who are still addicted to the central narrative, still consumed with mainstream culture, still prepared to believe whatever the television says, believed without question that every bit of this was true and that that made Donald Trump a terrible person. And they staked out their positions on Donald Trump based on the false accusations made in this case. They were told they had the right story. It turns out they were completely wrong. And it is interesting to me to see a story like this come to its conclusion at the same time that all of the child brains who are addicted to the central narrative now find out that the Hunter Biden laptop is real. And not only is it real, but it actually contains all of the things that we said it contained because we were saying what was on the real hard drive a year and a half ago. And pretty soon we're going to be getting that report from Marco Polo on everything that is in that laptop. Everything is all connected. They tell you the stories, the level of analysis and verification in that report is staggering. Marco Polo has done heroic work that will stand the test of time. And it'll certainly withstand all of the coming debunkings that the mainstream media attempts. 
It is incredible to me that at this point, anyone, anyone believes the mainstream media about anything. The mainstream media exists only to propagandize the public. They are a propaganda arm of the global communist world order. And I know, I know you're not allowed to say world order, but it turns out that we're not the only ones saying it. You know, we are at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy, not just the world economy, in the world. It occurs every three or four generations. As one of them, as the uh, one of the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 60, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946. And uh, since then, we established a liberal world order and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people dying, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to there's going to be a new world order out there and we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. So anyway. So anyway, a new world order. Joe Biden is ushering in a new world order and he just wants America to lead it. You see, every 60 or 70 years or so, there's a great upheaval and the society changes. And it's usually accompanied by tens of millions of deaths, as Joe Biden just described. Now, most of those tens of millions of deaths were directly attributable to communism in the 20th century. We had that. Millions and millions of deaths in Russia and China, millions and millions of deaths from World War Two. But hey, if you're going to make an omelet, a new world order omelet, you got to break tens of millions of eggs. And by eggs, I obviously mean people. And of course, Joe Biden is OK with that because this is what they've been aiming at for decades. But when he says America should lead this new world order, he's not talking about an American government that is representative of the American people and elected by the American people. He's talking about the country of America with the leadership put in place by the new world order. Well, we'll get to consider that we are leading the new world order, even though the new world order is one world government, and you can pretty much see the thing taking shape in the form of the World Economic Forum. But not to worry, we have a demented, doddering old pervert who was not legally elected to lead us into the new world to come. And let's spend some time talking about how illegitimate Joe Biden is. The third report from Mesa County, Colorado was released yesterday. All of that evidence is up on frankspeech.com and it's posted in the info stream t.me slash I'm your moderator. I want to read the executive summary of this report and then go through a press release from the U.S. Election Integrity Plan Group in Colorado. So the executive summary. This report documents the findings of an examination of tabulated vote databases based on forensic analysis of the drive image of Mesa County, Colorado's Dominion Voting Systems Election Management System server. 
The findings in this report were prepared by the authors as consultants to the legal team representing Tina Peters, the Mesa County clerk and recorder pursuant to her statutory duties as Mesa County's chief election official. The findings provide evidence of unauthorized and illegal manipulation of tabulated vote data during the 2020 general election and 2021 Grand Junction municipal election. Because of this evidence, which led to the vote totals for those elections being impossible to verify, the results and integrity of Mesa County's 2020 general election and the 2021 Grand Junction municipal election are in question. This analysis was performed using the forensic image of the EMS server, which was backed up before Colorado's Secretary of State and Dominion Voting Systems overwrote the hard drive with D Suite version 5.13. And that replacement of system in the hard drive is called a trusted build. It erases everything before it. Findings and implications. One. There was an unauthorized creation of new election databases during early voting in the 2020 general election on October 21st, 2020, followed by the digital reloading of 20,346 ballot records into the new election databases, making the original voter intent recorded from the ballots unknown. In addition, 5,567 ballots in 58 batches did not have their digital records copied to the new database, although the votes from the ballots in those batches were recorded in the main election database. Okay, so these 5,567 ballots in these batches, there is no digital record copied over to the new database, but those votes were copied over and they don't know which value those votes were assigned. And these were among the 20,000 plus votes that were copied over. The same unauthorized creation of new election databases occurred during the 2021 Grand Junction Municipal Election on March 30th, 2021, followed by the digital reloading of 2,974 ballot records, making the original voter intent recorded on those ballots unknown. In addition, 4,458 ballots in 46 batches did not have their digital records copied to the new database, although the votes from the ballots in those batches were recorded in the main election database. And that was number two. This is number three. The absence of secure hash algorithm dot SHA files for each digital ballot image makes the authenticity of each digital ballot image and the ballot level record for those ballots impossible to verify. The true total vote count in Mesa County, Colorado, cannot be accurately calculated for the 2020 general election or the 2021 Grand Junction municipal election from records in the databases of the county's voting system. Five. There is no function or feature on the EMS server that could be executed inadvertently or deliberately by a local election official that would cause this combination of events to occur, especially within the time frame that these events occurred. Given the complex sequence of data manipulations and deletions necessary to produce the digital evidence described in this report, this combination of events could not have been the result of either deliberate or inadvertent actions by those officials. So it comes from somewhere else.
Number six, Dominion's installation of the trusted build update on the EMS in May of 2021, as ordered by the Colorado Secretary of State, destroyed all data on the EMS hard drive, including the batch and ballot records that evidence the creation of new databases and reprocessing of ballot records described in findings one and two above. This destruction of all data by the trusted build is described in the Mesa County, Colorado Voting Systems Forensic Examination and Analysis Report. The fact that such ballot record manipulation has been shown demonstrates a critical security failure with the Dominion Voting Systems Election Management System wherever it is used. The manipulation would not be identifiable to an election official using the voting systems, nor to an observer or judge overseeing the election conduct, much less to citizens with no access to the voting systems, without both cyber and database management system expertise, and unfettered access to database records and computer log files, many of which were destroyed by the actions of the Secretary of State from the EMS server the manipulation would be undetectable. Now, the key thing to understand here, what they're talking about is the Dominion Voting Systems, that's the company, the Election Management System, that's the machine, the computers, all of the hardware that gets purchased by states and counties and localities all around the country. They have a forensic hard drive image, a before and after for the trusted build. They got the forensic image done of the systems before the trusted build. The trusted build happened, and then they got a forensic image of the hard drive after the trusted build, and they're comparing the two, and they are showing that all of the changes that resulted could not have happened without criminal manipulation. Election files are supposed to be retained for 22 months on a federal level, and each state has their own individual standards for exactly what has to be maintained. I think Colorado is supposed to save theirs for 25 months. And the Colorado Senate actually has a bill that intends to make any of this analysis impossible. Basically, everything becomes controlled by the Secretary of State's office. No audits can be done. Nothing can be looked at. It is all under the control of a George Soros Secretary of State. In Colorado, it's Jenna Griswold. But as you can see, the point here is Dominion voting systems are capable of this everywhere around the country. And other states like Michigan and their George Soros Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson have done the same thing. They've had Dominion in to do a trusted build, which erases all of their records. They assume that they're not going to get caught and they assume that if they get caught, they'll just be able to ride it out for long enough that they'll put new laws in, expand the Supreme Court, make sure that somehow these people will never actually have to get punished for these crimes. So let's go through the press release from the U.S. Election Integrity Plan Group in Colorado. The headline is Colorado Secretary of State Griswold guilty of election crimes. Evidence indicates Griswold is desperate to cover up criminal violations. The third forensic report analyzing Mesa County electronic voting systems exposes proof of changing vote counts, 
multiple unauthorized databases discovered and used in two separate elections and more. Public calls for immediate federal and state law enforcement to investigate evidence of crimes. The third official forensic Mesa report analyzing Mesa County electronic voting systems is being posted publicly tomorrow. And this is from last night. That's what's up now on frankspeech.com. The report shows that the Mesa County electronic voting system contained multiple databases, which should not have been present and also indicate manipulated vote counts. The multiple databases in the voting system show ballot and batch records were moved and changed, breaking the chain of evidence, leaving the true vote count unknown. This makes the vote count in Mesa County's voting system impossible to authenticate or prove accurate, voiding the legal certification of Mesa's election. The report goes on to explain that this illegal activity happened in two different elections, and there is no possible way this manipulation was an accident. The first forensic report analyzing the Mesa County electronic voting systems showed that at least 29,000 election records had been deleted at the direction of Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. The second Mesa forensic report exposed numerous system vulnerabilities, including firewall and security rules that would allow any computer in the world to connect to the voting system server and 36 separate wireless networking devices in the voting system. Remember, they say over and over again, there is no way these systems can connect to the Internet. That has always been false. Between the wireless devices, the insecure configuration, and the destroyed election records, the voting system could have been undetectably connected to the unauthorized devices, networks, and the Internet, directly or indirectly. In the third report, there is undeniable evidence that the vote counts were changed and manipulated. According to systems testing expert, Colonel Sean Smith, retired U.S. Air Force, quote, in contrast to voting system testing lab personnel who claim no specialized knowledge or background in cybersecurity, the computer experts who authored the Mesa 3 report have 80 years of combined experience and expertise, including degrees in computer science and mathematics, defense and national security experience, and are making all evidence available to the public and other researchers. The evidence of destroyed election records, unauthorized software installation, multiple manipulated vote counts, databases, and unmonitorable wireless networking equipment exposes numerous federal and state crime violations, including civil rights violations. None of these violations would have been detectable to local election officials without this report. The public is calling for immediate criminal investigations by both federal and state law enforcement. In a desperate attempt to cover up evidence of numerous serious crimes, Griswold introduced a bill in the Colorado Senate that, among other egregious attempts to seize election power from local election officials and leaves oversight of Colorado's elections solely in the hands of Secretary of State Griswold. In fact, the bill makes it a crime for election officials to criticize how the state runs elections and bans public audits of elections. SB 22 
1-800-273-8255-153 appears to be designed to cover up all evidence of the crimes committed in Mesa County and to suppress citizen discovery of new evidence. Colorado citizens are outraged at the bill and are taking a strong stand with election officials, urging them to vote no, especially in light of Mesa Report 3. In a separate legal case, Secretary of State Griswold is suing the Elbert County clerk and recorder in a desperate attempt to seize hard drives containing Elbert County election record backups. Once the Elbert County backups are forensically analyzed, it is highly likely that the same evidence of Griswold's illegal conduct in Mesa County will be found in Elbert County. State law enforcement officials, including Colorado Attorney General Weiser, are expected to demand access to those backups in support of a thorough criminal investigation. Key findings in Mesa report number three. Number one, creation of multiple databases. The Mesa County Voting System server should have had three databases in its election project for each election. But in Mesa County system, two additional databases were found for two separate elections. The existence of those additional databases and the movement of ballot records between them, breaking the chain of evidence needed for ballot and vote authentication, is proof of voting system noncompliance with federal voting system standards mandatory under Colorado law and proof of manipulation. This is akin to having two sets of accounting records in a business to hide fraudulent and illegal financial transactions. Number two. A pattern of multiple illegal databases in separate elections. Multiple databases were found in both the 2020 election records and in the 2021 election records. Slight variations in the method of ballot and batch record copying between databases reinforces the conclusion that the manipulation was deliberate. Number three, ballot and election records chain of evidence broken in multiple ways. Once ballot images and records were moved, deleted, manipulated, and recopied, the chain of evidence was broken. Digital files required to verify ballot image authenticity simply did not exist in the new databases. It makes it impossible to verify the authenticity of so many ballot records. Now election results cannot be determined from the voting system records. Four, no accident. There are no listed, authorized, features and procedures, or even the ability through a combination of features and procedures on the electronic voting systems to instruct or enable election officials to manipulate ballot records and vote count databases in the manner discovered. This activity was unauthorized and could have been conducted in any number of ways, including combinations of unauthorized software, remote access, and or malware introduced through a removable device, such as a USB drive. Number five, illegal certification of Colorado electronic voting systems. Because the electronic voting system in Mesa County, Colorado, was not only vulnerable and exposed to manipulation, including the systematic destruction of election records and proof of actual manipulation, the voting system could not possibly have met the requirements of the federal voting system standards mandated by Colorado statute. So right there, just that part alone is proof that Colorado's election should not have been certified. And we've gone through this in countless states at this point. But this is Colorado. This is one of the ones we don't even really talk about that much. And their election could not have been legally certified, which means that the state's election 
cannot be legally certified, which means that the country's election cannot be legally certified. All of this is on the basis of fraud. Everything that has happened since November 3rd, 2020, and truthfully far before that, has been the product of intentional and malicious fraud. This is a stolen election. This is what it looks like. It doesn't look like the media finally saying on television, hey, it turns out the 2020 election was stolen, but there's nothing we can do about it now. Experts say it might not have been stolen. This is what it looks like. This is hardcore, irrefutable evidence of election theft, election manipulation, fraud, criminality. You don't need to wait for the television to say it or for your commie friends who try to constantly taunt and haze you for believing in the truth. You don't need to wait for any of them to admit it. The evidence is everywhere. The election was stolen. Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. You have more than you need, far more evidence than you need to be able to confidently make that statement in any environment. The evidence will always back you up and never fail you because the evidence is the evidence. They don't have to know the evidence. They don't have to repeat the evidence. They can still sit in denial as they do about the Nazis that they're supporting in Ukraine, the pedophilia they're supporting when they say Katanji Brown Jackson could have never done that. She's a strong black woman as if that has something to do with it. And just for clarification's sake, this is who compiled this report. Okay. The first two of three Mesa County voting system forensic reports were prepared by Doug Gould, the former chief cybersecurity security strategist for AT&T. Mr. Gould is considered a foremost expert in the cybersecurity field and holds CISSP and CAS certifications. He is also a faculty member at the World Institute for Security Enhancement. The third Mesa County voting system forensic report was prepared by Jeffrey O'Donnell, a full stack software and database developer and analyst with degrees in computer science and mathematics and 40 years experience in software, database and analytics for large private sector corporations and by Dr. Walter C. Doherty a computer consultant and senior lecturer emeritus in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at Texas A&M, earning his master's and PhDs in mathematics from Harvard, attending on a National Science Foundation Prize Fellowship prior to his 37 years experience teaching computer science and engineering, including artificial intelligence, quantum computing, programming, and software design, and cyber ethics. So are they conspiracy theorists too? And of course, people will say, well, yeah, I guess they must be because the election was the most safe and secure election of all time. Bill Barr said he hadn't seen evidence. The courts went against Donald Trump, even though he appointed some of them. There's no evidence anywhere. And these are baseless claims. And at this point, you just have to let them say it and say, hey, Good luck with that, Kami, because it's all coming to an end. You got to understand that the media cannot just keep holding up the weight of all these people's false beliefs. It's not working.
People are understanding what the truth is, and they are moving in the direction of truth. Look what they're defending now. How much more can they defend it? If someone tells you there's no evidence of election fraud, ask them, why are you defending this exactly? Because there is evidence. It's all over the place. All you have to do is look at it. You're saying there's no evidence because that's what the television has told you. And that's what all the newspapers have told you. And that's what social media has told you. In fact, you're not allowed to even see any of that on social media because it's all censored. And why do you think that is, Kami? And hey, Kami, why is it that you are so prepared to defend everything the television tells you? Is there a point at which you will stop defending what the television says? Look what you are defending. Think about what that says about you. How long until you just let go? I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!